0: Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and picking parts. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Stephen Craig.
1: And Parker Dillman.
0: This is episode 359.
1: So let's start with, do uh, you want to start with that topic first? Picking a part for your design?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that'd be fun. So <clears throat> I've been doing some research recently. Uh, where i've I've been interviewing engineers and asking a handful of questions about their methods through how they go about getting parts or selecting parts. Like the way I've been framing it with the people I've been interviewing is how do you get to the point where you are you get that warm and fuzzy feeling about the part that that you're like, this is mine. This is the one for for my design. And uh, I've already interviewed a handful of engineers and I've been, like I said, this is a, a little bit of a research project, and uh, and I've I've gotten a variety of answers. That's been fun, and I thought it would be interesting to ask the same questions to Parker, and get his answers to these uh, these questions here. So let's just go ahead and and jump right in. And uh, one of the things to note about this, some of these questions are really wide open, so they're up to your interpretation on how you want to answer them, and that sort of. I guess part of the research so the first question uh for you parker is what is your process for selecting parts for your
1: design so what kind of part are we talking about here because it depends on what kind of part
0: well just just inform me just just go for it
1: all right so if it's a let's say if it's a microcontroller um for my projects it's generally going to be something that i kind of already know the tool chain for um i generally don't go seeking out new architectures just for the sake of doing so um, so like 18 mega samd stuff um you know parallax propeller it really depends on what kind of project uh that the microcontroller needs like what functions the microcontroller needs to do um like if i need dma that's like a big thing that you need to go looking for um, it's actually something I've never noticed that you could like sort microcontrollers by is like by peripherals that'd be really cool um, like if you had uh, let's say you needed like had a specific ADC um, requirements be able to sort on that would be really cool because most time it's like okay pull up the like most time you just get like the clock speed and then like how much bits it is like 8 bit or 16 bit And then maybe some power requirements like it's like 3.3 volt rail or something like that. And that's about all you can normally search for. And then you have to kind of like dig into data sheets for everything that's really important. Um, Beyond microcontrollers, um, let's see. For MOSFETs and like transistors and stuff, I'm like try to find the first thing that matches what I need, like current wise. And like, let's say like what my gate strength is going to be. And then just find the f- fastest thing that will work. That's in stock. <laughs> <And> that's just <laughs> my experience with like doing pinball controller stuff. It's like, okay, I have this much current and this much voltage I need it to handle. And this is how wimpy my drive strength is. Can this MOSFET like handle it? And usually, for that, it's like making sure one, like, you know, its vol- its gate threshold is low enough to work with logic level stuff. And then I do just throw it into a simulator and see if it works, which is kind of a funny way to do it. But, you know, it beats doing a lot of hand calculation to see if like, oh, I need a new alternate for a MOSFET and there's like 40 alternates. I don't know which one's going to work. Um, so that seems to be a good way to do that, at least for me. Um, I probably made a lot of like engineers face bomb uh, <laughs> saying that, <laughs> but I, I like doing it that way for for uh, MOSFETs and stuff. Um, connectors is I like the window shop for connectors. That's uh, might be a good term for it. Like I love looking at pictures. Um, I actually will use Google Image Search. So to look at pictures of like, I'll try to describe the connector in like physical form, and then just go look through the pictures and find something that looks like what I'm looking for, and be like, ah, and then have to like back calculate what the part number is, and then go see if that's available, available or like it's unobtainium or something like that.
0: Um. Uh, uh, something funny that came to mind about that. That seems like a really prime place for. AI to be involved, where you you go and you type in, it's blue, it has 16 pins, it has some notches here and there, and then AI goes and searches the web and is like, did you mean this?
1: Yeah, that's actually what it kind of feels like, looking for connectors. Um, Like a lot of times, I will go to specific companies that I know have stuff that's kind of what I'm looking for in a connector like Samtec or like TE connectivity or Molex directly and search their, like actually just get their catalog, like their PDF catalog and just go through the pages really fast and looking for something that I'm looking for. Um, or barring all of that, then I hit up like Mouser or DigiKey and use their parameter searching to kind of narrow it down from like, hundred thousand whatever connectors they have on their website to like maybe a thousand so it doesn't take too long to go through all the results and just looking at the pictures and that kind of stuff and this is stuff that's like it's not like a usb connector or anything like that like when i was looking for connectors for um the uh the power distribution module like i only had like a certain parameters i really cared about and everything else was i didn't really care about um like the contact like how many pins there were and then how much current we could pull was like the two main things so finding that was a little difficult and really only like three or four connectors on the market that actually hit those um what other sensors how about pa-
0: passive components
1: passive components oh man uh i usually stick to a couple different manufacturers just cause I know that they're like on their supply chain side, I'm not going to get screwed. Um, I mean, it helps buying from like authorized dealers, but when you, you know, like Panasonic resistors, it's just something I've, I'm always just going to pick a Panasonic resistor, um, like thick or thin film for surface mount. Like I know there's other kinds, but that's pretty much all I spec out. Um, same thing with like uh, capacitors, like, ke- like sticking with Kemet, and not always Kemet, but like uh, Murata, et cetera, et cetera. Like the big name brands. I generally would stick with them first. And then honestly, after that, it's like, what value do I need? What's the package size? Make sure it's in the right voltage tolerance. And then what's the cheapest and in stock. Um, that's beyond that, that's about it. Um, maybe if you had like, if I needed some like, some specific frequency stuff. Like if it was like in a switcher, a power supply switcher, you might I might look at those settings. But most time it's I'm not doing a switcher. Um that's about it there. But like sticking with the name brands is typically what I do. Um also because their data sheets are better. Like when you go look at a Murata is really good at this. Their ceramic capacitors will actually show like, here's the you know how much voltage you're giving the chip and actually how much capacitance it will have. Like they actually will have those curves. Whereas a lot of other manufacturers are just like, eh, th- we don't have any of that information. Good luck.
0: Oh, you mean for voltage dependent capacitance and ceramics? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is what ceramic capacitors have. And You know, 99% of the capacitors that people use out there and products are usually ceramics. Um, And yeah, most people don't want to pay attention to the voltage dependent part. So they just assume that maybe the, uh, like, let's say they need a 16 volt, 10 microfarad ceramic. That's like, that's a big capacitor, but let's just say that. Um, And they go, oh, that's out of stock. So let's go to the, the, um, let's go to a different voltage rating. And they might didn't do the D rating correctly or anything like that. Um that might actually be more on procurement, I guess, to learn that. Or just go back to the engineers and get approval. But I don't know if a lot of engineers even really like think about that. Because it's not in a lot of data sheets. Um I've only seen a couple manufacturers put that in there. Um might be a CYA thing. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. The uh sensors and that kind of stuff it's more of a funny enough like if i need to measure a specific thing um like in this what's oh, a good case i'm currently working on project. um that's a sensor oh oh okay um I It's not really a sensor, but it's a digital potentiometer project I'm working on. Um, And funny enough, uh, when I typically look for sensors and parts like that, I search for like, I want a digital potentiometer and then Arduino or something, a keyword like that or like Reddit. Just so I can find discussions about parts like that and I can get suggestions that way. Um, And then go look in the data sheet and see if it's something I want. Um, uh, we, we have a rule here on the podcast of like, don't talk about projects. until like 50% way done, but that's, that's one of the projects I'm like, I want to be able to control, uh, old school gauges in the car and I'm going to use a digital potentiometer to do that. And I was looking up like different chips that people have used in conjunction with like Arduino code one, just for ease of prototyping. But two, you know, if someone's got it working on an Arduino, it's going to be like ninety nine point nine 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 percent chance I can also get it working uh, on a on And an
0: and there will be somebody talking about it and there's someone talking about it.
1: it. Oh, this it, on this one weird edge case, it did this, which is yeah. so great to know about that kind of stuff because that a lot of a lot of data sheet lore will be in like the discussion <laughs> and not actually in the PDF from the company. Data
0: sheet, Laura. I love that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I do use a lot of like, try to find discussions about parts. Um, like what people actually say about them and that kind of stuff. Uh, like a lot of times I'll even if I find that part in a normal way. I will like search that part number on Google just to see what other people talk about that part. Like, is there something I'm missing? That's not going to work out for me. Um,
0: yeah. Even above and beyond individual parts, I, I find myself Googling circuit
1: blocks a lot.
0: Yeah. i just yes. like, here, here's, here's like a concept of a circuit. And then how can I morph that to do what I want it to
1: do? Yeah. Um, power supplies. I like I, regulators and stuff. Well, not really regulators. Um, regulators are typically pretty easy to design for. But um switchers, I I do TI Webbench. I'm I'm not afraid to admit that. Um pretty much all my products I that have a switcher on it I've designed with TI Webbench. Because it makes it so easy. And sure you get locked into a TI part, but TI still makes parts. So
0: well but I mean with with any of the switchers, like the integrated switchers, you're gonna be Whoever you choose, you're locked you're, you're in with right. them.
1: You're right. You are right. Yeah, um, I
0: I wouldn't mind being locked in with Ti Webbench.
1: No, uh, I I like their their tool a lot. It works really well. It shows you a bunch of graphs. It does all the simulations for you and all that stuff. It gives you like different ways to weight the uh what you want. Oh yeah, do I care about
0: efficiency or do I care about cost or, or size part count or
1: yeah. So it and it gives you a, the best thing about that that uh tool is it gives you not just the values of all the passives that you need, it actually gives you legit part numbers. That it's actually for, for, for the parts for work. the
0: parts that really count.
1: Yeah, for the parts that really count, which is for a lot of switchers, a lot of them. Um
0: Yeah, yeah, like the ESR and output caps or the inductors themselves, or yeah, those kinds of
1: things. And um yeah it just that feature alone sells them like a hundred switches a year through me <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: sure that feature alone sells them a lot of a lot of
1: farts. yeah I <laughs> yeah, love that I'm sure it does yeah um what other parts
0: I mean you've gone through a whole ha, 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 let's do one more how about relays
1: relays Okay, um, basically, current ratings is what I mainly look at, but also I started looking more into voltage and how difficult it is to switch high, especially DC, high DC currents um, because of arcing and uh, realizing that's not the way to go, I guess. (laughs) Um, The... The problem with relays, too, is um, you kind of, especially if you start doing, like, very specific things, like what I was doing with pinball, um, you kind of just get locked into a specific brand. um, And you can't really switch out of it. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's a specific... All the manufacturers tend to have their own footprints. At least for the soldered on ones. I know there's some that are, like, socket design for like DIN rail stuff. Um, but, you know, most of us don't really deal with DIN rail stuff. Um, so you kind of get locked into a footprint, which is kind of a shame. Um, yeah, really, besides just hitting the right specifications, I don't have a, neat, a secret sauce in finding a, a relay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I no, wish no there worries. was more
1: ways to because I mainly deal with DC. So, finding relays that actually would that actually have their specs for DC um, would be better. Most manufacturers also don't really tell you until you dig into their data sheet. And it's like, oh, this is like the max DC switching. And then they give you kind of like the min too. But it would be nice. There is a curve there. It's not linear. And it would be nice to have a curve there from the manufacturers. Hmm. But I understand why they don't, because it's like that's a lot of testing. Make sure your relays handle that. Well, and
0: and just to be clear, these questions are pretty wide open. It's more about seeing how you your process as a whole on, yeah. on approaching these things. Yeah. And 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 I'm in, in a way I'm I'm comparing these the way you answer this with the way everyone else answers it, and I'm seeing where things align and where things are, are not the same. And what's funny is I will spill the beans on one thing. And, and this is unsurprising, but almost everyone I've asked this question to is always like, well, I, I go to the, the regular guys and I see what's in stock. And, and I I think, (laughs) I think a few years ago, if you, if I had asked that question, that may not have been the same thing, but like, I mean, because obviously because the, the supply shortage on things like that's just, that has become a new thing that we have to care about. Yeah, I would
1: say on... We did the, it before. Um, on certain parts, I care if it's in stock or not. Other parts, I don't. like. I know I can get alternates easily for, like passives, maybe some actives, discrete actives like MOSFETs and stuff. But it's when you start getting to where you get locked down in your design and you can't get around it, like a microcontroller or a fancy relay or... Um, a sensor. That's when that really matters. And if you, if I could see like stock history, that'd make it so sort it'd of be super easy to decide if I want that part or not. Mm-hmm. Um, now all it takes is, you know, one, one designer to use that part in their design and then go, Oh, well now we need to build like ten thousands of these and it wipes out everything. Right. right. Um, there's not much you could do there, but at least if you looked at historical data, Like, if you look at the historical data for, like, AT-SAMD, 21G18 microcontrollers, which is, like, the one that's on, like, Arduinos, uh, the newer Arduinos, like, a microchip will come into stock for, like, two days, and then everything gets depleted. And then two months later, all back in stock again. Two days later, depleted. It's, like, just big old spikes in their inventory. But if you see that historical trend... Um, you can go. Oh, at least you know it's out of stock now. But look at the historical trend, every two months it cycles back in, and I will be okay. Stuff like that. Instead of also, like, the
0: like, you know, if if that's a trend where you see it's in stock for two days, that at least gives you some idea that like, oh, if you see it in stock, buy it immediately.
1: Buy it immediately. Um, versus just seeing like, oh, it's going to be in stock in two months. Mm-hmm. Whereas you don't know if that's an actually legit or just like the company said that and it's actually doesn't really hold their their stock numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go on to the second question. This, this one should be fairly quick, I think. Um, So the question is, what is your preferred method of learning about electronics? And, and, and to kind of make this a little bit easier, I'll, I'll throw like an example. Let's say, let's say your boss came up to you and was like, I need you to design XYZ circuit. And you know, that circuit has an op amp in it and that op amp you need, you need some stuff that maybe you're unsure about, but, but you know that it has specifications that Uh, maybe you're not fully aware of how would you, what is your preferred method of going about learning electronics? Specifically that op amp, I guess
1: the first thing I let's say, let's take this for example. The first thing I do is I go dive into like a Wikipedia page for whatever the device is, just so I can start looking at like what specifications does Wikipedia care about with that op amp, like input impedance and and bandwidth, et et cetera, like, you know, all that stuff. Right. So at least when you go to the next level, which is starting to look at, um, other circuits that use these parts. So you can actually start figuring out, okay, what, how is that circuit interacting with that part to make it work correctly? And cause if you know, at least what the inputs of the system is, you can kind of gauge what the output might be. Um, and then, uh, so I look at like, uh, example schematics if i can find them on the web um and then just be like just start searching around see if anyone's actually even talking about those kind of parts um i learned so much about by just like reading how other people talk about the parts and how are they using them um the the but the the thing is though is to make sure to understand like how, what is driving that which is like the actual you know the wiki like the Wikipedia parameters, so to speak, of the parts. Um, like when you have to go select a part, like an op amp. Like which numbers do you even care about when you start plugging them in? Because you don't know when you first start out. Um, or which number the, the the dangerous ones are the numbers that you don't know you need to care about. Mm-hmm. Which are mm-hmm. always the ones that get you.
0: <laughs> and, and and those numbers are not always the same. Design to design, they yeah. it That's might change different. because in some design this doesn't this doesn't matter, but in another one it might be critical. Yeah. So so Google, uh, what I'm hearing from you is things like Google and Reddit and uh are, are are your friends in this case?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll typically do this is my secret weapon. So it used to be in Google, you would search for something and then they had a discussion tab, mm. which was like the best thing in the world because it would just be basically form indexing that you would get. Uh, they got rid of that because of advertising basically, because everyone would just go to that when they go search a part number, instead of like that part number landed you on mouse or digi-key. Okay, key, um, okay? But the, there's a trick, search the part number or what you wanna learn and then form, F-O-R-U-M in your search thing. And it will just bring up, it, it's honestly almost just like how it used to be where it just brings up discussions about the, that, that, that search term that you searched for. Uh, that's legit. Yeah, So I do that um, all the time. So just type in form and boom, now you got, you got rid of all the places that want to sell you that thing. And now you only have people that want to talk about that thing.
0: So let's say um, analog devices had a video about op amps. What would be your... Uh, w- would you be willing to watch that or would you kind of just be like, ah, no, I'm just going to go Google and search it myself?
1: Um, it depends on how long the video is and how much filler there is and how much it's either trying to teach me or sell me on the parts. Mm. Uh, it's kind of hard to gauge that, but it, typically if it's like, if it's on the shorter end of the side, let's say like two minutes long, it's definitely going to be advertisements. If it's between that two minute and like 15 minute ish, I'm like, that's probably going to be good content any longer than you get into like Dave Jones, EV blog. And like, he talks about <laughs> stuff way too long.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good information. Uh, okay. So <clears throat> the last question here, and uh, this is, this is for, uh, this is for Parker to kind of, inform us on um, your thoughts on things. Uh, How would you make the process of selecting parts for your design easier? What would you like to see
1: that makes it easier for you? Honestly, discussion threads on like the part page. So people can make comments on that part. Like basically build a I, I, a, a, cause we do this in our, our Slack channel is like people will post like, I'm thinking about using X, Y, Z part. Does anyone know anything about this? And then like, usually there's a couple people that are like, Hey, I've used that part or something similar, that kind of discussion, unfortunately in our Slack gets lost because it's, you know, 90 days, retention period. Um, but that's the kind of information that's super important to, at least for me, selecting the parts. Is what Seeing do other engineers else. think about this? Yeah, has anyone actually used this part before? It that probably stems from the fact that I've never worked under another engineer, like design engineer. I've always been like on my own. Right, I never worked on another uh, under another design electrical engineer before. So I'm like, mm. I'll come up with something. I'm like, I have no idea if that's good or not. <laughs> Let me go Google around and see if that's anywhere near a good idea. That's actually the best thing about this podcast is I can come up with ideas. And then in within like a couple hours, I have people telling me if it's a good idea or a bad idea.
0: Seems like you take a very practical approach at every turn. You, when searching for a part, you're looking for validation. Um, Elsewhere and and that's not like a that's not like a dig or, or anything like that But you're saying like okay, I found this part. Maybe it'll work. Has anyone else had success with it? You're, yeah. you're kind of searching for that all over the place and 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 I've I've talked to other engineers who basically say the same thing
1: Yeah, so you're um, not alone in there. there there are some times where I'll like you just can't find anything It's like well, I'm gonna try it anyways, right? But yeah, you, may,
0: maybe you're the pioneer. Maybe you're yeah. the first one
1: and when that happens though, I try to design the risk out of that. So that when I try this new thing, it minimizes time and money basically spent on that one thing. So like maybe design it into a separate board that you can like glue onto another board that you know, it all works, but you might Hmm. want to be able to like, Oh, I don't know which of these four sensors that, um, that are, uh, solar controllers for solar panels, right? Cause that's uh, one of the projects I'm working on. And I don't know which one I'm going to use. So I'm going to design the rest of my board, which I know 99% of the time I'm that's it's locked in already, right? The bomb is good. Like the microcontroller and all that stuff's good. But this one section, I don't know which one I'm going to go with. So maybe designing the board around being able to swap that module out. And so you reduce the risk overall of your projects. And you can like basically build one board and then those three sub boards and just plug them in and out and measure all the different performances and take your risks that way. Um, Risk management is actually just a blanket over that whole thing, right? Looking for validation uh, uh, to reduce your risk. um, And also uh, if you can't find that then reduce your risk in your design by in your prototype phase. You,
0: you know, I, I talked with one engineer and I, I heard something unique that I haven't heard from anyone else, uh, basically ever. And, and this engineer works in a, a situation where they, they're really heavily regulated. So they have to prove a lot of their design requirements and they have to be able to, at a moment's notice, pull up their testing documents and say like, here's, here's how i prove that my design does what it does so their search their very first thing that they do is if they find a part that even even smells like it might work for them uh the first thing they do is they say does it have a a a dev board like uh can i get a dev board of of whatever it is it doesn't matter what it is and then if they if it doesn't have a dev board they weigh is it worth me making a dev board for this? Because basically, any for their designs, any kind of thing that the data sheet claims, they have to be able to test validated. that it actually did that.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, long, long time ago, back when uh, Macrofab was still aimed at like the maker markets, like mm. it being a thing. Um, we came up with, I think you and I basically came up with this idea of being able to have a, like, you would just type in the part number you want and it would build a breakout board for you Mm, and assemble it for you. Um, we actually prototype that out similar. And, um, like you would basically type in a part number. It would get, it would basically go, Oh, that is footprint X, Y, Z, like QFN 16 and go, Oh, we already have a, we have a QFN 16 breakout board. And then you, it would put that onto the board with pins already done. And then there would be, um, where you could set a capacitor. Well, basically it gave you a bunch of pads too, that you could populate, pull up, pull downs and capacitors of different values or whatever into those pins. So you can basically almost like to find your breakout board in a browser instead of having to do any design work on, on mm-hmm. in your EDA tool um, I love love to be able to explore that option again uh, but it gets
0: really that, complex real fast
1: it could get real complex real fast um, and I don't I don't think though um, there's a lot of money there <laughs>
0: no. No, probably not.
1: But it would be a cool option to look into.
0: For sure. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, answering those. That was about 30 minutes. And I've, I've been telling all the people I do this interview with, like usually like 20 to 30 minutes to answer these three questions. And, and I'm just, like I said, this is a research thing, kind of figuring out um, the way engineers think. Uh, about these these kind of processes. So.
1: Yeah, the um, dev boards, like I'm not looking for a full-fledged dev boards. I want just like a breakout board of, of that part because then I can actually breadboard it faster. Um, you know,
0: the one thing with dev boards that I've found that is a little bit unfair is, yeah, they let you determine things in the data sheet, but dev boards are like, they have the part and it's dressed up as best as it possibly can. And it has its like prettiest makeup on and like the layout is flawless and and perfect. And like, it's, it's not going to be that way in your design. You know, like dev boards are the perfect situation and everything about your design is a compromise from the dev board. That's true. Yeah. Especially when you get like one of those switchers where it has like really perfectly laid out polygons and and everything about it is flawless and then you put it on your design it's just like well i can't <laughs> i can't
1: do anything more close to that efficiency level right right yeah. so well yeah but i view it as like i want to validate as quickly as i can that it's working to reduce mm-hmm. risk in especially when like you're looking at like i need to hit market next august and so I back up four months for production, right? So I need to make sure my design's locked in like four months before that, just so I can make sure I can get my parts on order, because it's gonna take four months for the parts to come in order, and then it's gonna be four months in production and then delivery. And so the sooner I can go, this is the sensor I want, it has the performance I want, then I can go to procurement and go, buy me 2,000 of these sensors right away, because we're gonna use them.
0: Right. Right. Or get on the wait list to buy. I'll get on the waitlist. list. Yeah,
1: <laughs> That's, that is true.
0: All right. So uh, let's move on to the next topic. Barker, um, you're resurrecting an old project in terms of it's been on your mind and you've been working on it, but resurrecting in terms of talking about it here.
1: Yeah. The uh, the cat feeder on reminder is what this Project is, is a timer device that just lets you know when you need to feed the cat, but not like it, not like a push notification to your phone or like a pager or anything like that. But it's just so like, if you walk by the the cat food bowl and your cat's like going meow, 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 like feed me. You need to know if the cat's been fed within like the last 20 hours to make sure you don't like overfeed the cat. Like, why are cats so fat? Because everyone overfeeds them, because basically, you know, they always want to eat food. And so they always bug you about it and you go, oh, did I forget to feed the cat? Maybe. Let me put more food in the bowl. And then now you got like a twenty-two pound cat that can barely walk. <laughs> and the funny thing about this project though is it's not much of a problem anymore. because uh, my dad my dad retired earlier this year. And so he he went down to, to his retirement house um, with my mom now. And so, like, it's just me in the house now, and I don't forget to not feed the cats.
0: Well, yeah, the issue before was that there was multiple people not communicating about feeding
1: Correct. Cat. It would be basically like I would walk in, notice that the cat food bowl is empty. I'm like, oh, I usually feed the cat around 6 o'clock. It's like 6.20, 6.30. I'm like, oh, I should feed the cat. Whereas my dad had fed the cat at, like, 545. And so the cat would get double fed. And of course, the cat eats all the food. <laughs> and the cat's okay with that. Yeah, the cat's totally cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of got shelved for a bit. I was working on other projects. And then um I I was uh going through some some uh development boards I had and organizing them, and I found my development board for the AEM uh 10941 which is a this which is the solar charger that i was going to use for this project and i'm like you know what parker you should just finish this project because you already have all the parts or most of the parts you have like 90 percent of the parts here you just got to get stuff kind of lined up and then make a board boom done right well i started experimenting with this uh, actually like running current calculations and charging up um because I. I have the AEM uh, 10941 set up as a super capacitor charger. Like there's like a lithium battery mode and that kind of stuff, but I'm using the super cap style Um, charging and um, seeing like how much current can you actually one hold for long periods of time and charge up and because this is all
0: battery-operated and solar-powered, so it's low-power.
1: Yeah, overall. everything's got to be low-power about it because um, I don't want it to plug into anything. Um, I just kind of want it to just be a box that just sits there on top of, like, the food container and then, like, light shines on it every so often. And the original interface was basically a button and then an LED, and the LED would... Uh, and the, Well, two LEDs. One LED would be lit when... Um, it's in like standby mode. And then the other LED would, you know, a different color would light up when it was time to feed. You press the button, it resets, good to go. Problem is LEDs are power hungry. Even like pulsing them, it was still like above a milliamp, which you're like, oh, that's not a lot of power, Parker. But when you're talking about like a solar panel, that's a lot of power. Um, Especially when you like don't want any primary batteries in this at all. Funny enough, is like I could probably make this powered off like a lithium coin cell and do like that do that LED and it'd be fine for probably like two or three years.
0: But you just replace the battery, yeah.
1: Yeah, you just replace the battery when the battery dies. But that's not fun. Um So Um I just I actually was like looking around my desk and lo and behold, I'm like, wait. They're used. There are calculators that are fully solar powered that have indefinitely displayable displays. They just don't light up. They're just like, you know, reflective. What was it? Uh, What kind of LCD screens are those called? Um, Oh, I don't know the name of it. I don't think they're called reflective, but they might be. Anyways, it's a segment style of LCDs. Um, And so. I started looking around, like, how do you drive, like, how do you drive those? And most people just hook them up to a driver chip that does that. And I'm like, well, that's fine. But then you need, like, a microcontroller to, like, wake up and then send a serial string to that controller so it displays, like, you know, whatever you want to notify the person and that kind of stuff. I'm like, man, that's a lot. And then you got to get a
0: right driver to match the LCD. And
1: yeah, that's like, that's a lot more stuff, too. And so I'm like, well, what really is what you're driving these screens with is basically a low voltage AC current, um, like between three and six volts AC. Um, the part number I'm going with with the segmented LCD is VI-422DPRCS. You want to take a look at it, um, and so, uh, with that display, it needs like three to six volt AC to light up or to activate light up is not the right term to activate a segment because it doesn't light up. It just turns non-reflective. Um, and so to generate that voltage or power, I guess to power it up, um, you can a lot of a lot of people just like make a square wave coming out of a microcontroller and then push that right into the um, the the display, um, which is basically you, you know, when you, we were talking about before the podcast, um, it's technically alternating currents, but doesn't cross zero. Um, and. You need your your dry voltage needs to cross zero with these screens for the longest longevity. I don't know how long driving it with a DC ends up killing it, but we're going to do it the proper way because you know podcast, right? Um,
0: yeah, I'm reading a, a a note here that says that AC is used to switch LCDs, as DC would result in electrolysis of the LC. Uh, and one ray degradation of the electrodes. So, yeah. if you it, you can apply DC to it, and it will work, it'll just
1: well. It uh, still has slowly to slowly
0: destroy it. It still <laughs>
1: has to be like alternating DC.
0: Oh. I mean, you have to pulse it. <laughs> you still DC. have to pulse it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like it.
1: Um. So th- the first thing I did is I, I was like, oh, I have some some hex inverters, and I've made an oscillator with hex inverters before. So I tossed one together, it's like, um, I posted a link there of, of like a little circuit. Um, it's like a capacitor resistor, two inverters, and um, and it basically uh, works off, you know, filling up the capacitor, and then that sends a, uh, hits basically the the voltage threshold of the inverter drives the output, cycles back around, then drives it low, and then resets the whole circuit. It's kind of how it works. It basically
0: Um, slows down the reset of the hex.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Because if you just connect a hex input to output, you can make an oscillator that set. Yeah, it
1: would. It just would be really, it'd be gate speed.
0: Right. It'll be gate speed. Well, it'll be, you know, dominated by whatever the capacitance of the output and input is. Of of the hex. And so like that's the max speed that a hex will go at any any capacitance in there slows from that speed
1: down to nothing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this actually works great. I actually got a segment to light up, I got multiple segments to light up. Um really the only problem was it's still better than the LED, but it pulls about 117 microamps of power. Or of current, I should say, um, which is a tenth of what the LED pulled, which good. We're, we're we're moving in the right direction, but I know we can get better. <laughs> so I asked the Slack channel, and um, so there's another component um, that's in that four thousand series. It's a there's a uh, forty forty seven, which actually is an oscillator, and you set it with the same amount of parts, a capacitor, or, you know, RC circuit, basically. And MX shift from Slack says these will pull around 20 microamps. So we've already gone down another order of magnitude, right? Um, good. Can we go lower, though? Uh, Metacolon from our Slack channel suggested a comparator with a oscillator configuration. And we basically have to run two of these because we need, you know, we need... We can't just have one oscillating DC uh, output. We need to have an inverted as well. So we actually do have a crossing zero point for the screen. Um, and so you may we need two comparators, but that pulls around supposedly around one microamp. We don't really know yet until we experiment with it. But it should be around one microamp.
0: Yeah, we were looking in the, uh, what, the data sheet for it, and it was one micro ramp out at 50 to a hundred Hertz somewhere in that range. So,
1: and this is like, we're talking like somewhere north of 50 Hertz is what we need. It doesn't, this place really don't care just as long as you cross zero and drive them the other way for equal duty cycle is really what they care about.
0: Yeah. The design doesn't matter exactly if it, if it's 50 Hertz or if it's, uh, Sixty hertz, or if it's a hundred hertz, like I don't think the user will know.
1: No, I don't think the display will really care either. Right. Um, and then Eric Smith just posted actually in our our Slack channel um, where there's no there's new MEMS oscillators, which I haven't looked at yet. Um, and I wonder if we can get a MEMS oscillator because the one that that uh, Eric Smith posted. Is like a standard, you know, 32.768 kilohertz oscillator. Um, I don't know if they make a MEMS oscillator that goes to like 100 hertz, but that also could be an option, right?
0: Well, I, I funny enough, right before this podcast, I was looking at this, um, this uh, manufacturer, Si Time is uh is the name of the manufacturer and they make these small they're most of them come in bga packages like little four pin bga package oscillator chips and yeah they're they're little mems guys they have some that are fixed frequencies but some also that uh are selectable so i i saw some that went down to one hertz. so you you could look into this and and they claim less than one microamp, but if you look in the data sheet that one microamp changes to like three or four microamps as soon as you start looking at um some of the uh some of the more uh, specific characteristics of your design. It it is worth uh, looking into. However, mem stuff is really cool. Um, and you might be able to get away with fewer components, even fewer than just R and C. Maybe just R. I don't I don't know exactly how these ones work, but.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at, they do make those MEMS oscillators in one hertz configuration. Yep. Here's one that's 32. I wonder if 32 would be fast enough. Probably doesn't care. And and
0: <laughs> there's no way that the actual MEMS trampoline on the inside that they have is oscillating at one hertz. It's got to have a, a huge amount of uh, division in there. Mm-hmm.
1: I wonder how much these pull. I wonder if you know what? Can we get a dev board with one of these that oscillators cool. on it? Because it's a BGA, and there's like no way I'm hand I'm soldering that by hand for it to test it out.
0: Wow this this one chip I don't I don't even know the what is it the SIT fifteen thirty two I'm looking at right now. It has a mechanical shock resistance of ten thousand G's.
1: It so the be- so. The cat feeder unreminder can handle being knocked off the counter by the cat.
0: Easily. And not lose its counts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might it might jump one count, but, you know, across... what What is your, what is your timer? Like 16 hours or 20 hours or something like Somewhere that? Somewhere
1: in that north, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one count and that's not going to... Let's just put it this way. One count's not going to kill the cat. <laughs> no. 10,000 G's that's amazing so
1: really um, this is pulling about the same amount of current as the op amp stuff the co- mm-hmm. comparator circuits
0: but you're only going to get uh, a unipolar output out of this thing you're still going to I have to invert need a, that
1: yeah I still need a a, a a comparator or an inverter to flip that
0: Right. So, you know, even though this pulls a little bit less by itself, you're going to have to add the power budget of whatever the inversion is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this might be like a fancier way of doing it, but you might end up over your budget having to do both of those. Yeah,
1: we're probably going to try. I'm going to get some 4047s on order and then some uh, some comparators and Mm. uh, we'll try that out and see how much low current can we go. Um, but I'm running into another problem now. I'm already at the range of my, uh, multimeter cause I have like a SIG length, what, uh, 30, 45, I think, which is a four and a half digit. Um, I'm already at the area or zone of the meter where like, it's not really accurate measuring currents as low. Um, so I need to find a better way to measure currents. Um, So, if anyone has suggestions in our Slack channel, um, let us know what might be a good way to start measuring currents. I probably need if I'm going to do more low power stuff, and I plan on doing it. um, I probably want to get something that's like not like, like cobbled together on my bench. Probably need to get something that's actually a tool. All
0: right. Well, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Me too. Let's wrap up this podcast.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think my cat's
1: meowing at me. Wants to be fed.
0: Well, sounds like you need a device that tells you if you should feed it or not. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts,
1: Stephen Craig and Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone.
0: Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Parker and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at Macrofab.com. Also check out our Slack channel. You can find it at Macrofab.com slash Slack.